Yeah. All right, let's get into verse number eight. And I tell you, in verse number eight of chapter 12, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But, in verse nine, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Father in heaven, help us to interact with your word and to discuss and engage and and to see what the text says and as we present questions, lead the congregation by the Holy Spirit to give good answers that reflect um, a diligent um, application of the text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's our general outline if we look at just 8 through 12. That is the acknowledgement and the denials of the Son of Man and what all is involved in that. And then the difficulty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then finally this promise in 11 through 12 that the Holy Spirit would teach. And uh, let me just ask you right now, does your Bible, look down at your Bible right now, does it have headings? Does your Bible have headings? Raise your hand if your Bible has headings. So nearly all of them do. Okay, so does anyone have a heading that is different than acknowledge Christ before men in verse 8? Does anyone have a heading that's different? All right, what do you have, Adam? All right, confess Christ before men. Anyone else have a heading? Does anyone not have a heading? Let's answer that question. Not have a heading? You, you don't have any headings? Not in that spot. Not in that particular spot. Do you have headings, but you don't have one there? All right, so, so what do you got? Jack, what do you got? No heading. Do they use any of them? No, there's no headings whatsoever. What is the advantage to that in your mind, Dr. Farmer? What's the advantage in not having headings? I don't have an automatic You don't have an automatic presupposition, big word, presupposition. Uh, explain that one. Right, so the, the, those headings sometimes can become a disruption to the flow of the text. Do we understand what we mean by a disruption? Because it seems to suggest stop here. Right, stop here, pause here. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you acknowledge the fact that it could be problematic, that it could be problematic. So let's look back at verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7 for just a minute. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they've done more than that to you. But I warn you, I warn you to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. All right, so why did we look at that? Why did we look at that? I want you to see here that in this pericope, verses four through seven, there is an idea that you need to fear God. Do you see it? 
that you need to fear God, that there should be a reverential awareness of a need to have a genuine fear for he. And what's the reason why you should have a genuine fear of God? Why? Yeah, because he has the ultimate authority to cast you into hell. So, so let's acknowledge who he is and the authority that he has to cast you in hell. Like if he says you're going to hell, there, you don't get a lawyer at that point. There's no appellate. You're not having your day in court. The decision has been rendered. So now if I look down at this pattern here, I can't help but to see the triunity of the pattern. So in verses five, 4, 5, and 6, I see a focus on God the Father. Fear God. And then in verses number 8 and 9, I, 8, 9, and 10, I see a focus on who? The Son of Man, who is the Christ, who is Jesus. And then in the middle of verse number 10, I see a focus on who? The Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think? Am I reading something into it that's not there? Or do you think that that's an intentional pattern that Luke set up? What do you think? What are your thoughts? That we have God, the Son of Man, and the Holy Spirit there. And they're presented in this triune pattern. What are your thoughts? Accident or intentional? Intentional? Anybody else? Any thoughts? Do you, do you see the pattern that, that I'm showing you? And th- this is why I think that in some cases, the labels, the headings are disruptive. Because if you went like we did last week through four through seven, you might think I'm done with four through seven. And that would be a reasonable conclusion. You start with eight and you move forward and you don't actually see this triune pattern here that I think is pretty apparent in the scripture. So in verse number five, God cast you into hell. In verse number nine, the Son of Man denies you at the final judgment. In verse number 10, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Do you all see that in the scripture? Do you see that pattern? So then it seems to suggest that the entire triunity of God is involved in your destiny. Fear God, because he might cast you in hell. Make sure that the Son of Man doesn't deny you at the final judgment before the angels. Understand that if you spend your life blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And again, here it is in yellow so that you can see it. There's cast into hell. There's denied before the angels. And against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Or look at this pattern. In verse number seven, God values more than sparrows. That's very positive. God values you more than sparrows. In verse number eight, the son of man will acknowledge you. This is what you want. You want the son of, yes, mine. You want him to acknowledge you. In verse number 12, there's a promise that when you get hauled in front of the authorities and you have to talk about what you believe about Christ, that the Holy Spirit will be with you, that the Holy Spirit will be there teaching you what you need. So again, what do we hear? We have this triune pattern in both a negative way and also a positive way. Do you all see that? I think that's really good. 
And again, looking at the whole totality, not forgotten before God. You're not forgotten before God. You are of more value than the sparrows. The Son of Man will acknowledge you before God and the Holy Spirit will teach you. Okay. So I tell you, everyone who acknowledged me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels. What is your understanding of why Jesus uses the term Son of Man? What is your understanding of why Jesus uses the term Son of Man? Because I'm sure you know that it's his favorite self-description. He uses it more than anything else. Deborah. All right, he's referring back to the Daniel prophecy. Sure, absolutely. We'll get there in a second. So hold that thought. Mike. Within the context of the Trinity, he looks like the Son of Man. Within the context of the Trinity, he looks like the Son of Man. I would suggest that maybe that is between, between Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, they refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Okay, that within the Trinity of God, this is the title that he's referred to. Stephen. All right, that he appeared on the earth as a man. What else? What is your understanding of why Jesus adopts this idea of son of man as his favorite title for himself? What else? Where? John? I would actually say the opposite. I would say it's a term of deity. And, um, and he's given the son because, you know, in the Old Testament, um, the Lord will say to my son, sit on my right hand, you know, until make that enemies that puts And it's about and it's about obedience. Okay. Is it cryptic? Is it cryptic? Well, what do I mean by cryptic? How am I using that? What? Deliberately misleading. Confusing. Mysterious. Isn't there an element of Jesus's ministry in which he's continually saying stuff like, don't tell people that? I mean, he does that. Don't go talk about it. And I think the term son of man is cryptic in the sense that it communicates something. If you understand where he's getting it from and how he draws it out, but it doesn't immediately. He doesn't say king of the universe. He doesn't say that. He doesn't. God of gods. Sovereign. That's now. But if you know what he means by son of man, John, with this, this um, psalmic or this Daniel aspect to it, then it begins to click. Like something that's clearly understood, but only understood amongst believers. That's what I mean by cryptic. In the sense that if you get it, you know all that's there. But if you don't, it just might run right past you. He says, and I, I, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels. He doesn't say Jesus will also acknowledge before the angels. Why? Why, why does he use this term son of man? Why does he use it? All right. So where are we going in the Old Testament with this reference? You gave us a little bit, but do you know the chapter? What? Chapter 7, you're right, good job. Daniel chapter 7. 
And you need to turn back here and you need to memorize this verse. And when I say memorize, I mean know where it's at because of its significance. He is drawing off of this passage. This is the primary text that he's drawing from with this Son of Man reference. And it's so significant that every single person in the auditorium tonight should understand why it's there and what it says. Verse number 13 of chapter 7. Are you there? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. I mean, this is quite the vision. He sees the ancient of days, and then he sees one like a son of man. Now, what does that mean, one like a son of man? How do you take that to mean one like a son of man? How do you understand that? What, what, what do you think he saw that he would use like a son of man? What? All right, deity that's in the form of a human body. So do you think he saw arms, John? Legs? Would you all agree with that on this side? So something that clearly looked like a man. Why does he say like, though? So something that looks divine. Is that how you understand it, John? Something looks a lot like a human, but not so much that just a human that I have to say like a son of man. Do do we agree with that? So he sees someone being approaching the ancient of days. Who's the ancient of days, church? God the Father. All right. So the son of man is approaching the ancient of days. And and we want to know what happens next. And to him, all right, who's the antecedent for the him? The son of man. So I can read in verse number 14, and to the son of man was given, and then we stack it up, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that's pretty incredible. How, how are we to understand dominion, glory, and a kingdom? Let's keep reading. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. So with that information right there, elevate the Son of Man. How high of a king is he? How high of a king is he? Just just elevate him. How high? Almighty? King of kings? Anybody else have any idea? How, if, if all nations, all languages serve you. Universal. What, Donna? Almighty. All right, let's keep reading. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And just so that you're clear on what he means by that, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that what? Now wrap your brain around that. What Old Testament character could they even remotely think about that would come 
anywhere near that. I mean, they've been living in a scenario where this entity destroys this entity, this entity, this king rises up, this king defeats him. This is, and all they know is that nobody has a kingdom like this. Nobody has an everlasting kingdom. Now, why am I emphasizing this so much? Because we have to explain what it means to acknowledge me before men. What it means to deny me before men. When we just simply read Son of Man, we might just blow through this without thinking of all the implications of what it means to acknowledge the Son of Man. All the implications that are associated with that. So from Daniel, the Son of Man is very messianic. Very messianic. He's given an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Why am I bringing this to your attention? Because we seem to have adopted within the evangelical church this kind of quasi-belief that as long as I think that Jesus died on a cross, full stop, end, good, done, I'm saved. And what I would say to you, church, is that we need to say that's the starting point. That is the foundational starting point. But if that faith that Jesus died for the cross for my sins is real, what will happen to that faith? What will we see happening to that faith? Where will it go? It will what? It'll grow. But what do we mean? In what way will it grow? Because he doesn't say here, if you believe that I died for your sins... I'll name you before the angels. That's not what he says. He says, son of man. Why does he go here instead of there? Because in son of man, he's getting what kind of a kingdom? An everlasting kingdom. So then let's, let's, let's just say the obvious, like Captain Obvious. If you have a kingdom, you're a what? You're a king. You're a king. Right now. It's interesting to me that the Hebrew word, I mean, the um, uh, Merriam-Webster Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives us such a good definition of Messiah. Messiah, the expected king and deliverer of the Jews. Now, what is our English word for this word Messiah? I know Messiah is an English word. What is the word in our New Testament that's the primary word for Messiah? Christ. That's right. It's Christ. And it's unbelievable. I'll ask tomorrow in chapel how many understand this, and it'll just be terrible, the number of people that don't understand that when we say Jesus, what are we emphasizing? When we say Jesus, what are we emphasizing? His what? All right, manhood. But call him Jesus for what? Matthew one twenty one. Call him Jesus for what? Yes, he'll save his people from their sins. But wait a minute, it's Jesus Christ. It's actually we we should more properly we should always say it like this: Jesus the Christ. We don't say it like that because it sounds awkwardly from an English perspective. But normatively, we should insert the definite article there: Jesus the Christ. 
And when we say the Christ, this is what we're, this is what we're focused on. He's the king. So then if I understand that son of man is the king, then maybe this helps me understand what we mean by this idea of acknowledging the son of man. Because are we merely saying here that I acknowledge that Jesus was a historical character? I don't think so. I think there's a lot more here. Do I acknowledge the son of man? How do I acknowledge the son of man? Now let's unpack that. Let's, Let's unpack that idea. Do I acknowledge the son of man? And then what does that look like? So if you, had to, if you had to paraphrase that or if you had to reinterpret that to make it more understanding for a new believer, what would you say when we say, do you acknowledge the Son of Man? What would you say? I'm giving you a chance to talk. All right, not ashamed to identify with him. Good, what else? All right, recognize and submit to his kingship. Now that's huge. I mean, you've just moved the bar from down here to up here, just like that. Do you acknowledge in your life that Jesus is king? And then what's the logical follow-on question? Right, so I would say to you that the acknowledgement that I'm talking about is not a verbal acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement through the choices that we make that reflect submission. You have a thought or are you just turning around? Behavioral acknowledgement. Do you all like that? Behavioral acknowledgement. Yeah, John. All right, let's go there. Romans 10. Since John took us there, let's go to Romans 10. It's not on the slides, and that's why you bring a Bible to church. Let's start at verse 5 just to get our conversation started. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean to believe that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean to believe that Jesus is Lord? This is a reasonable question to ask and answer. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is Lord? 
You're not the sovereign of your life. You want me to read verse 10, sister? Okay. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the one with the mouth confesses and is saved. That what? The idea of daily. Word and deed. Word and deed. It's like when we had the thing a few years back, not my president. Right. Okay, you can say not my king, but this is, you are my king, and I'm going to live as your sovereign subject. Right, so a saved person would never say not my king, right? Right. Why? Because you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is... Lord, and the expectation is that this confession results in, as Evan said, behavioral changes, modifications. It'll become very evident by the life that you live that you are, in fact, saved. So give me a practical way that you acknowledge Christ as your king. Give me one practical way that you acknowledge Christ as your king. This is rubber meets the road. Let's get some quick ways. Yes. All right, treating other people with respect. Simple but profound. Excellent. Another one. Let's go. Real practical ways. You acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Sam. Share him with your day-to-day life. Open your mouth and share him. Next. Thorn. Confessing your faith. All right, publicly confessing your faith. We talked a little about that this morning. John. Tithing. Tithing is a clear manifestation of your faith that Jesus is Lord. Autumn. Serving the body of Christ, picking out situations. Oh, Sam's contributing. His girlfriend's here. He's got to look theologically sharp in front of her. That's good. I'd do that too if I was, I would right there, brother. All right, let's hear it. What? Prayer. That was excellent. Prayer. Is he a good guy? What do you think? Is he a good guy? Yeah. Thumbs up to keeping him. All right. Very good. That's awesome. Yeah. Put a rock on our finger, brother. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Daily time in the word. Daily time in the word. What else? Come on, what else? Hannah. He touches every part of your daily life. Come on. Trust him when things are not going your way. Brian. Brian. Steward my time the way he wants. So how much time do you want me on Facebook, Lord? Charlotte, forgiveness. Oh, good. That's excellent. Work ethic. Not being a complainer. Mike, did you have something? I thought you had. Nope. Yeah, submitting to his will. Yes, sir. What's your name, buddy? Yeah, Gideon. What's up? Praying. Sure, praying. That's what Sam said. Yeah. Yep. Praying. Deb. Expressing gratitude. Yes, sir. Preaching out in public. Okay, public witnessing. Very good. Praising him in the ups and downs. And the downs is really hard, isn't it? Yeah. Anybody else have this idea? Raphael. 
Yeah, yep, doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Yep, doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Sam again. Taking care of yourself so you can take care of others. At what point does that balance with self-worship, though? How do, how do you balance those things? Real basic? Yep. Okay. Two, Harold and then... Um, what? Okay. Patience. Even with your brothers and sisters? Well, he's got them younger ones, you know. He's the oldest, and there's like how many... There's like five of them or something. Like, y'all have a full family, right? So, yeah, he gets a <laughs> Anybody else? David? Defend him. Yeah. Yeah. I used to make it clear that Christ wasn't his last name. And um, I would loudly make sure that they knew that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, this is your last one, all right? No more talking tonight. Giving to the poor. What? Giving to the poor. Giving to the poor, excellent. Good. A sacrifice being uh, able to carry your own cross even during time Yeah, take up your cross and follow me kind of stuff. Yep, Sean. Yeah, bringing up Christ's name in situations that are not so popular. Yeah. All right, so I think we've already answered this. Is the issue I don't deny that Jesus died on a cross or I don't acknowledge that Jesus is king of my life? I think it's the second, right? I think we agree. It's the second. So it's interesting to note in Revelation 2.13 that they actually get called out with this commendation. And the commendation is, I know where you dwell. And then notice the language. I mean, what exactly does this mean? Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Now, now, just grasp the depth of what's being said there. Because, I mean, I have no idea exactly where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells is what it says. But obviously, it's not a great location. And they're receiving this commendation that even being that close, they what? They held fast. They did not deny my faith. That's incredible. That's where we want to be. That's, that's where we want to live. Verse 9 says, But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Earlier, chapter 9, verse 26 says, For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, just to kind of mess with you just a little bit here and just to kind of push back, I was kind of wrestling in my mind with this. Um, 
I wonder how I reconcile the understanding of God's election of souls before the foundation of the world, which I wholeheartedly believe with all my heart, mind, and soul. The the Bible clearly teaches that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 forward. And yet there are all these very um, warnings, serious warnings. I mean, he doesn't just present it like this. If you're elect, you'll be saved. If you're not elect, you won't. End of story. Go home. It's so strange that instead he gives these warnings, these these admonishments to who? To the body of Christ, to the disciples. He says here that, that if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before father. That all seems to be very conditioned upon me. Agreed or disagreed? Yet, it seems to be a clear indication that this is what elect people do. That God's elect are characterized by professing him, acknowledging him. They won't deny him. Yet the ownership is on them in this verse. You don't deny him. You acknowledge him. This tension that I'm talking about is seen pretty nicely in Jude. So go over there and turn to Jude for a minute. Find that little book. It's just a tiny little thing. All right, let me find this. There's a couple verses here. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and what's it say? Kept. Kept. What, what else did I hear? Preserved. Preserved, sure. And then the ESV says, kept for Jesus Christ. Now think about that. God the Father is keeping you for Jesus. How many of you are thrilled that God the Father is keeping you? Amen. God's keeping you. Yet in verse 21, you're told, look at verse 21. In verse 21, you're told to do what? Keep yourself. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Am I being kept or am I keeping myself? And then look at the doxology. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And once again, what we find as we compare and study Scripture is that many times, if we're being true to Scripture, it'll be very paradoxical. Very paradoxical. Like, you just keep talking out of both sides of your mouth. And the answer is, yes, I do. But why? Because that's what Scripture shows me. That's what Scripture presents me. I can look up to you and say, Evan, keep yourself in the love 
of God, I can turn to you, brother, and say, God is keeping you in his love. And both are completely true with no contradiction whatsoever. That is a glorious thing to know that you are being kept and that you have a responsibility to keep yourself. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. He also will deny us. 1 John 2.22 says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Son of Man. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Jude 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the gospel of our God into sensuality, and this is what they do. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So now we look at verse number 10 and we read, and everyone who speaks a word against the Holy, the Son of Man will be forgiven. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But then he continues. He continues. And again, we're trying to figure out how do we reconcile these statements here. Verse number nine, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So what is going on here? Which is it? Do you see it? Look on the screen with me. Verse 9. If you deny me before men, you will be denied before the angels. If you speak a word against me, you will be forgiven. Evan. One is perpetual, one is momentary. All right. Evan says one is perpetual and the other is momentary. Thoughts on that idea right there. Come on. We've got, if you look at this, they seem to be two contradictory statements. One says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. The other one says, if you speak a word against me, it'll be forgiven. One is Paul, one is Judas. One is Paul, one is Judas. Paul is the first. It's Saul. Saul, yep. A word. Okay, so uh, we have uh, Paul on verse 10 and Judas on verse 9. Okay. And what you're saying here is nine is perpetual and ten is momentary, right? All right, what else? Jessica? All right, so would you say, where's Peter go on this? Is Peter a nine or is Peter a ten? A ten? Okay, Sam? So, so which one are you saying here? One more time, Sam. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying that this speaking a word is like a sin and that sin is forgiven. Is that what you're saying? Okay, what else? Come on. Any thoughts on this? Go ahead, sister. But I can momentarily deny him, right? Like Peter did, right? Because the scripture says that Peter denied the Lord, agreed or disagreed. 
Yeah, how many times? Yeah. And, and Peter goes on in Acts 2 to become an incredible preacher of the gospel. Yeah. So what is the difference between denies me and speaks a word against me? And you say it's perpetual versus momentary. And Sam, you're saying that it is like an example of a particular sin that's forgiven. Brian? But at that moment, can they be forgiven of that? I think they could be. Sure. Not ever. I mean, Nicodemus would be an example of one who would be in that crowd, but then doesn't continue to Sure. Sure. All right, verse 10. This is where we're going next week, so I'm giving you a warning. Okay? Because there's incredible confusion over blasphemy in the Holy Spirit. You, it's, we're, like, all over the map. So we're not going to try to tackle this in two minutes. That would be ridiculous. But I would love for some of you good students of the word to carve out a few minutes, please, and look and find some resources, do a little bit research, find out what's out there. There is a plethora of scriptures and options out there, and it would be excellent if we would come next Sunday night equipped with some thoughts written down on what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit so that we're ready to actually discuss this as a church. All right, let's pray. Sam, you taking your girlfriend out anywhere? What's going on with that? Sometime this week. Sometime this week you're going to... You're cheap, aren't you? Yep. You got an affirmation on this side that it's fine to be cheap. All right? It's just, just fine. Was he cheap? It's frugal. I married this lady because my, my mama said I was cheap. She said I was frugal. I said, done deal. See, I told you, put a rock on her finger, Sam. Those are my exact words 10 minutes ago. Put a rock on her finger. Okay. It's good to come to church on a Sunday night, isn't it? All right. Yeah, a frugal rock, right, a frugal rock. Lord God, we love you so much. Church, say amen. We love you so much. And we're so thankful for your salvation that you provided through your son, Jesus Christ. And we don't ever want to take that for granted. And we pray, oh God, all week long that we will acknowledge you with our decisions and our choices and the way we live our lives. It'll clearly reflect that we believe with all our heart that you are the Son of Man, Lord Jesus, who was given an everlasting kingdom. And we are thankful that we get the privilege of being one of your citizens in that kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.